Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on jewishcoffeehouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome, welcome. Before we get started on today's episode, I'd like to let you know that we have three guests on to our full-fledged interviews, and you'll be hearing from a third guest who volunteered her story via a few voice notes in hopes to help others. And I really hope you appreciate this episode. This podcast is a Jewish Coffee House podcast, so check out the other podcasts on the Jewish Coffee House Network. This episode is brought to you by OK Clarity. OK Clarity is the place for any Jew, no matter how from or religious you are, to find a top-notch therapist, psychiatrist, coach, or nutritionist. And it's completely free for you to use. If you have a WhatsApp, shoot them a message at 917-426-1495. All the links are in the show notes for you, so make sure to go check them out. And here we go. Enjoy the show. Thanks for joining us today. We are starting the conversation around divorce and why is it happening more often or what are the causes. Today, we'll be hearing from several divorcees talking about their experience in divorce, but specifically, when did the marriage start ending? How did you know? What did you try to do to fix it? And what would you say the leading cause of the divorces? And I know it's like the question you're not supposed to ask any divorcee. It's like the question you don't ask. And we're doing that today. We're asking the question, why, if we had to like pin it down to one thing or to the top five things, what did it come down to? So we're getting the inside scoop and thanks for being a volunteer and agreeing to join us here today. Betzal Rothstein, welcome. Thank you. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your religious and professional backgrounds. And in a professional capacity, you also have some wisdom you're going to be sharing with us today. Betzal Rothstein, I am originally from Brooklyn, grew up in a regular modern Orthodox-ish family. Obviously, there's a lot of spectrum of modern Orthodox. I think that today I would probably be described as somewhat modern yeshivish, a little bit more religiously observant today than the way that I was raised. I am a family mediator and a divorce coach. And I got there through having generational experience of divorce in my life. My mother's parents went through a divorce. My own parents went through a divorce. And then I've, I'm now divorced and remarried. And my current wife has been through her own divorce. And her parents have been through a divorce and her father's parents have been through a divorce. So divorce is something that has followed me generationally. And it's something that I am very passionate about. And it's something that I don't think is really being treated properly in the Jewish community. It's interesting words of being passionate about divorce, but we will run with it. So tell us what the community is not talking about enough and what are some of the things Everyone should know. So I think that one of the things that we don't talk about enough is why people get divorced. So kudos to you for <laughs> talking about I why people get divorced. I saw some hateful comments on uh, that post when I was recruiting guests. So thanks for that validation. No, it's, it's, so, it's so important. It's so critical. There are a lot of reasons why people get divorced. There's a big issue that we deal with today, a cultural issue. We are living in an age of desire for instant gratification. And we are also very much living in an age of keeping up with the Joneses. 
So what I'm seeing professionally and personally in the uh, more Sharidi communities is that everyone is looking for the top guy, the top girl. Everybody is trying to fit into a very specific mold and meet very specific standards, which may or may not actually speak to that person individually. And so what the result of that, that I'm saying is that you have people that are trying to live lives that they don't fit into. And they're trying to be people that they never really want to be. And it's causing a tremendous amount of dysfunction of marriages. And it really all starts from, from dating and, and from high school, from seminary, from yeshiva. We are, I was actually just speaking with someone, with someone who's trying to break into the mediation field. I were talking about like, why do people get divorced? What, what are we seeing in the field that we're working with couples and how do we, how do we slow it down? And uh, yeah, and so I think like it goes like all the way back to the, in a more causative sense, the why maybe, why the couples get worse because they're not married and they thought they were married. But okay, so fast forward. So now you have a couple who's already married, like myself. So I was married with four kids before I got divorced from my ex. Now, why did my ex and I get divorced? Well, part of it was because we did not convey to each other while we were dating who we actually were on the inside, not me to her, not her to me. And so we got married and of course we have to try to make it work because we just got married. So you knew right away that it wasn't, how, how quickly? I think that like really, really honestly, like truthfully, honestly, I think we even knew during our engagement that we were doomed. But we weren't going to call off because we just wanted to try. We we thought we could, thought we could do it. And can you give examples of why, like what kind of things you saw even when you were dating? Illustrated dissonance in a dating relationship or an engaged relationship that didn't seem fixable. That anyone listening who is dating should be like, no, that is a cause to, for breaking it up. I didn't feel that my ex was somebody that I was ready to dedicate my life to. When you're in a marriage, you're, you're, a marriage is about being a life partner. You know, like you, you, gotta, you have to be willing to take a bullet for your spouse. But figuratively and, and, you know, literally and figuratively. That scene from Shtisla where Tzvi Aryeh hears about a spouse donating a kidney. And then he goes to his wife pretending yeah. he needs a kidney, seeing if she would donate her own kidney. And she, she's like, we can't both right. be out. Who's going to watch our kids? <laughs> but, you know, marriage is really about... It's about sacrifice. It's about, you know, giving yourself you know, for your spouse and for your marriage. You know, whatever you're willing to put into your marriage is exactly what you're going to get out of, out of the marriage. And I just, you know, while there certainly was, there was a lot of compatibility between us. Like there was definitely an attraction and a compatibility and we were able to largely get along. But this was somebody who I felt very comfortable dating. But at the same time, if I was saying like, if I was like, like can I really, really see myself being married to this person? No, no, no. So about you that. were pressured into sealing the deal. What cultural dynamics add to it? More my own pressure as opposed to like, I didn't have pressure from my parents. They didn't have, you know, I would say, you know, I was 24 when I got married the first time, which is not really, it's not really old by any stretch. But in, in my social circles at the time, I was one of the last of my friends to get married. I guess like socially, if you're 24 or single, you know, people are, you know, certainly going to be wondering, oh, what, what's this, what's this person up to? 
you know, and, and it's, it's not going to get any easier to find your shit up, you know, as you get into your later 20s. So, yeah, I definitely did feel a sense of pressure, uh, but it was really like more my own, own self-induced pressure. Yes, certainly there's social factors, but I wouldn't say that there was anyone specifically that was pressure. You, know, you got to get married. Okay. So there was that not willing to dedicate yourself to one person at all or like not really or was it her no, it was just, no, it was more, yeah no it was i'll admit that going into going to my marriage i had i would say that i had a a healthy amount of unresolved childhood trauma that i brought into my marriage and i i didn't really know just like having had divorce plays such a factor in my life i can't really say that i had a very clear picture of what it meant to be a good spouse, what it meant to, to have a healthy marriage. I was pretty clueless in that area and it showed, but you know, I, I would say that I've, I've learned so much from my experiences in, in my first marriage, in being divorced. And, you know, that was, you know, getting divorced was a very painful and traumatic experience for because I remember like as a child, I was feeling that, you know, I was a misfit and outcast, you know, what have you because of my, because of my parents' divorce. And I always said to myself, I was like, I am never going to get divorced. I'm just, I, no matter what, I'm not going to get, to get divorced. And then here I am getting divorced, four kids into a marriage. And I just felt like an epic failure. And it really, that experience while it at the time was a tremendous setback, but also set me on a path of self-discovery and healing and resolving a lot of my childhood issues and setting me up to be a much healthier and more successful human than I was. You, you don't know, have to leave this time. in, but what were your childhood traumas? Are you comfortable sharing? I think that my parents' divorce was difficult for each of them personally, and it just perhaps not Neither of my parents that maybe were emotionally equipped to deal with divorce and deal with being young single parents, they just didn't know any better. I mean, I, I, I do credit both of my parents for doing the best that they could with the tools that they had, which is, you know, that took me some personal work because you want your parents to do the best, period. Not like the best that they possibly can, but you know, you look around at, at you know, your, your friends and your peers, and you see, you know, what their childhood experiences look like, what their households look like. And if you see that you don't have that, it, it breeds an underlying anger, resentment, angst. Like, why don't I have that? Why don't I have that? Why is my life this way? Why is my life that way? So, you know, I think part of it was certainly on me and just my own childhood immaturities. And I think that also, you know, part of it is on my parents and whatever issues they had as as people that they had to deal with that led up to them getting divorced okay so you are remarried now what is different about the relationship the key differences that we need to discuss what are they the key difference really is me it was me putting in the work on myself to learn to figure out who i am and try to start on a path of figuring out who I could be, recognizing my own shortcomings, and having a much better idea of the type of person that I would be compatible with 
you know, how to cultivate a healthy marriage. Well, I just want to applaud you because I kept seeing the trend of the spouse who thinks the other spouse, that the other person in their marriage was the one at fault, even though it takes two to tango, obviously. But here you're sharing that you're the one who did something faulty to let the marriage fall apart. But I just wanted to say kudos to you. Well, thank you. You know, look, I'm sure that my ex has, uh, if she was sitting here with you and giving an interview as to as to why we got divorced, you know, uh, listen, maybe she would blame it entirely on me and, and not, uh, you know, anything. I mean, when I asked but, you the question, um, you I will didn't blame out. it on her. That That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying you're at fault. I'm yeah, just no, saying I, how you answered the question <laughs> is, is very um, I, unique. I, I appreciate that. That's just you know part of that of that growth and and maturity that process of being a better person that I've uh, embarked on. How did the marriage end? Like how long did it take? Did you talk about divorce? Did it just happen? Divorce is something that we talked about even during Shabbos. Okay, it was always something that that was on the table. And who brought it up? She brought it up. Again, I couldn't bring it up because I had all this childhood trauma that I was never going to get divorced. So it was, for me, it wasn't even on the table. I, you know, I was just going to cope with this life and this marriage however I could. I was probably already dealing with some mild to moderate depression going into the marriage. And then it was up and down the entire time, periods of love being more depressed, less depressed. You know, I, I think that genetically I was predisposed to depression and really never throughout my life had treated the, you know, critical root causes of where the depression was coming from and, and how it was impacting my life until it impacted my life in such a powerful way that I had, as they say, you know, hit a rock bottom of sorts and had no choice but like, okay, I have to deal with this. I have to deal with this because it almost killed me. Do you ever feel like your marriage was great? Did you have moments where it felt like, wow, this is right. This is the right thing. And this feels great. There was never that benchmark of, got it. Okay. Let's move on to your professional outlook and perspective. I'd like to hear a little bit more. I know you have so much more to your own story, but I want to also hear a little bit more about other people's situations, root causes. I think the number one marriage killer in the firm community today is addiction. And to that end, I would also say that the 12-step programs are probably the number one marriage saver in the firm community. And does the addiction start pre-marriage or is it something that's developed in the marriage or it varies? My experience tells me that it starts before the marriage. And I would also just mention that as a result of my experiences, I'm also a, a, a certified recovery coach. And if there's anyone who's going to listen to this show and feels that they are in a, a marriage that is in crisis and that there's a spouse that is an addict, I would encourage them to reach out to me because addiction is not necessarily something that's worth ending a marriage over if the addict is willing to get treatment. But isn't that a roller coaster? Willing and then not able, willing, not able. I've seen miraculous, miraculous, miraculous cases where, you know, people that are, are challenged by, you know, any array of 
addictions ranging from alcoholism, gambling, pornography, drugs, you know, any any which one of these, but if the if the addict spouse is willing to to get treatment for the addiction and the co addict spouse is is willing to to support the recovery, the results are nothing short of astonishingly miraculous. Now, the other side of that is something that we touched on a little bit earlier, is that the other, the number two marriage killer next to addiction is false advertising. The shidduch system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't want to just completely knock and mock the shidduch system, but I do find that it's, it's kind of miraculous that the divorce rate isn't even higher than what it is in the Haredi community when you look at how imperfect the shittle system is. Okay, so give us some examples, like not releasing some information. What What's the type of information that should be released that is advised not to? Are we talking about using medication? Are you, are you, are you speaking like in terms of like parents sharing information about their children? Or are you well, anything. Like in terms of like a uh, guy and a girl that are dating... Like, you know, what what should they or shouldn't they say to each other on a date? Everything and anything. Parents disclosing slash offering, you know, your entire medical history makes sense. But then needing to disclose before marriage. But then the couple could be very invested and not pay attention to it. So there's that balance. Because a 19-year-old might not understand. Oh, what's the big deal? You're... Right. You have a diabetes monitor right. connected to you, or you had some addiction issues. It looks the same, you know. Thanks for disclosing it. We'll deal with it. I like you very much. No? I'd say the, the mental health side of things is, is very essential to be disclosed. Let's just say, for example, that you have a girl who, at some point in her high school seminary career, was diagnosed with an eating disorder. Okay, and now she's doing much better. But, you know, hey, red flag, eating disorder tells me there's a self-esteem issue there. Self-esteem issue there tells me there's some sort of childhood trauma there. Because yes if and you no. had a healthy childhood, you would not have self-esteem issue. If you did not have self-esteem issue, you would not have an eating There disorder. is research to show that the A-type student who's over-controlling ends up taking it out on eating disorders, and there's not always a correlation with actual trauma. So there is research okay. for that, but it's not in all cases, obviously. That's one of the unique things to eating disorders. Right. You know, it also likes to be that that A-type, that that perfectionist. That's something that I do feel that that applies more to the to the women than to the men. Not that it's exclusive to women. It also touches on men, but I think it's more prevalent with women that are, you know, to be more competitive, more catty, and, you know, get like, so like that, that more controlling, dominant type of personality. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, when you're dating, you know, you're thinking about, I think, you know, correct, call me out. If I give any, if I, if I present anything incorrectly, just call me out on it. But my understanding of the dating process from the perspective of a post-seminary girl is that you have to look at this guy as like, he's going to be the king of your castle. Treat him like a king, support him, cook for him, clean for him, do his laundry, have babies for him, like almost like worship him. Right. And then, so that's what, the dignity experience is like, but then 
once you're in the household. So then all of a sudden she kind of flipped the switch and went into like super controlling mode. And the guy's like, what in the world just happened? This girl was like worshiping me. And now I'm the one who has to bow down to her. This is not at all what I signed up for. You know, so I think that that, that would be like a, an example of a manifestation of the false advertising side of the dating process. I tell people, as, as far as like people who are divorced and, and back in the back of the dating scene and looking into second marriages, they come to me for dating advice. And it's like, listen, when you go out on a date, don't tell her, like, make sure that she can be real with you. She's going to try to be on her best behavior. Or, yeah, it's not in every case. You have a lot of like women who are, you know, the second time where they're like, I'm not putting on makeup. I'm not putting on a show. I am just, you know, this, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. I already, I already did the whole putting on a show thing once and, and it didn't work out so well for me. So like now I'm just going to, you know, this, I'm just going to be real. But then there are others who are like, you know, like a, a date means I have to put on makeup. A date means I have to smile. A date means I have to be cheerful. I tell people, I say, listen, you're going on a date. Don't just realize, don't ask them to be on their best behavior. Okay. You're not getting, you're not going to marry someone based on what they're like on their best days. You have to marry someone based on what they're like on their worst days. Because you are in, in a marriage, you are going to have hard times. And you want to know that this person that you're married to is someone that, that, that you guys can stand back to back to each other and support each other on each of your worst days. Cause that, that's what marriage is about. I guess that going back to the, the first segment of our conversation and I think that I kind of felt like when I was dating my ex when we were engaged that just, it didn't feel like somebody that I was going to be able to that either I felt like I don't think that there was that mutual connection that we could tolerate each other and support each other on our worst days and that like it just kind of felt like oh if things are going to get difficult for us it's going to be very ugly as opposed to before I got remarried i was i was a lot more patient about the process and i was a lot more real and transparent and i think that for my wife and i both i think we both went into our our current marriage with a like feeling very safe and secure that on our worst days we were going to be able to give each other what the other needed do you think it's possible to give that kind of mature nuanced approach over to 19, 20, 21 year olds when there's so much pressure to get married. When there's so much pressure. So not if there's so much pressure to get married. But just the mere fact that all your friends are married and now you have no social life because all of them are busy with their babies. That's enough pressure because mm -hmm. it definitely is. It most definitely is. But I think that someone might be in that position that individual had opportunities to get married. That individual also went out on dates or had opportunities to accept prospective dates and, you know, went on the dates that didn't work. You know, they kind of compassionate away. I would say like, what's, what's not working for you about the dating process? What are you, what are you really looking for that you're not finding? You're like, what, like, have you, have you talked to a dating coach? Have you talked to a therapist? Have you talked to a marriage coach? Like, you know, do you see that there's, do you see that there's an issue that maybe you want to address? Listen, maybe the, maybe the issue is, well, everybody else is crazy. What are they doing getting married at 19? I don't, I don't get it. Married 19, babies at 21. Like why? You know, maybe, maybe this individual 
maybe they want to be a doctor and they want to finish their, they want to finish medical school before they start having babies because they believe that motherhood will have a terrible impact on their career path. And that individual, they may, will not feel fulfilled in life unless they become a doctor. So, you know, like that's a choice and, and, you know, like there's, there's collateral to be exchanged for every decision that you make. So look, you know, maybe you need to re reevaluate your career passion, you know, but like you got to work it out. There's, there's something there. It's, it's not just like random that somebody is like, I know that. Why did it take me until I was 24 to get married? Because I was dealing with this mild, moderate depression that was, wasn't getting treated that I wasn't really open to connecting with someone on a deep and meaningful level. So I was taking my dating career on, on, on a subconscious level, you know, like probably if I would have gone to a, a therapist or a dating coach that could help, that could help me like unpack everything. So my life, I would have had a, a different tra trajectory, but you know, I'm on the, the trajectory that I ended up on. So, you know, if we could, if we could figure out how to get more intervention at earlier stages to kind of like catch people who might be in this like tenuous sort of situation, I think we could do much better for, for those people, much better for our community. Is there such a thing as a successful divorce? And what does that look Absolutely. like? Absolutely. It looks like where that I would basically say where if there's kids in the divorce that, that the children can feel safe and loved for both of their parents, that's number one. Because the children... In most cases, the children don't ask the parents to get divorced. Sometimes the children do ask the parents to get divorced, but in most cases they don't. And even if they do, they, it's not because they actually want that. It's because it's like the households have become so toxic that they feel like that there's nothing else to do. There was no, there was no better option, but they really would want a better option. So the one is there where the kids have free and uninhibited access emotionally and physically to both parents, where both spouses are able to to make ends meet financially, that you don't have one who holds hands out to all the money and the other one is living in a tiny apartment and barely making ends meet. One where it doesn't become this scandal that the whole community wants to talk about. Like the one where, where the people in the community say, oh, if you're going to get divorced, you should get divorced like so-and-so got divorced. They have a good divorce. Like you want to be the, the, the poster family for the community of the divorce. So ultimately... The children need to feel safe and unconditionally have access to both parents and for there to be as separated as possible financial but equal contributions. Is that what, what you mean? To, to the best of their ability. To the best of their abilities, there should be financial equity. It looks now, different in every marriage. Yeah. Now, now, in some cases, you know, let's just go by like a cookie cutter case where you have uh, a husband who's a, a professional, you know, like, let's just say, you know, maybe uh, an accountant or, uh, you know, or, or an investor making a nice part of for the family and the woman, the mother stayed home and, and raised the family. So, you know, in such a case, depending on whether or not the mother has family that can help out, I think that, you know, if, if the mother does not have family that can help out, then I, I think that the burden falls on the father to make sure that the mother has enough financial support that the, because the, ultimately the idea is like this, the children shouldn't have to feel resentful towards going to the mother for Shabbos because the mother can only afford a small apartment 
because the mother is not professional, but the father is a professional. He can, he can afford a big house. He can afford a nice car. He can go to concerts, go to, go out to eat whatever he wants. And the mother is struggling because she never got a profession. That would not facilitate or foster that feeling of emotional and physical safety that the children should have with both parents. They're going to be, it's going to be lopsided in favor of the father. So I think in, in such a case, the responsibility of the father is to support the mother financially uh, to the best of his ability, but not to the point where now he's coming up short and the kids are coming up very short. At the same time, on the other side, mother has a responsibility to give the father as much parenting time as, as he can handle. So if the father might, he might work long hours. It might be hard for him to, to, to make time for the kids during the week because he's got to, he's got to make ends meet. He's also supporting the mother. But I think it's, it's important for them to, to find a way to cooperate, to give as much access as possible for, for both parents. And do you think more marriages, okay, so before I go to that, do you think women should just, as a father, I don't know if you have daughters or sons, but should it be like a standard that women need to earn on their own? Because worst case scenario, relying on her parents to help her, or there is a value and beauty to traditional old-fashioned marriage roles, and we should still encourage that. Are you, are you asking like in marriage or in divorce? Nobody starts off a marriage with the goal of divorce. So raising young right. women. Okay. I, I appreciate that question very much. I, as I, I would say that I'd say at, at, at the core, I'm pretty old fashioned myself. So I, I like that traditional family unit where the father is the primary breadwinner and the mother is primarily the homemaker. That being said, I think it's important for the woman to also have some means of contributing financially to be to have an interest in in the family finances like every every family unit is is different everything there's, there's sacrifice for everything so you know how much what's what's the sweet spot really for how much of her life can a mother invest in a career without sacrificing too much of being able to to raise the children so that's you know like there's there's got to be a right degree of balance there but you're presenting it like it's the woman's job to raise the family whereas in more modern families it is a joint effort and it's not so like obviously the sole responsibility of carrying the baby goes on the mother but once the baby's born the options are endless right no i'm more of a of an old-fashioned type of traditionalist that's just you know Okay, let, let's okay. move on to the next thing. <laughs> Do you think more marriages can and should be saved? Yes. Absolutely. Okay, how so? If you had to categorize marriages that should proceed to divorce and marriages that are struggling that should try to still work it out, how can you... I'm sure there's a timeline where those categories turn into categories. Oh, yeah. I've had couples come to me and I look at it like, oh, you guys are DOA. Dead on arrival. Yeah. This this marriage has <clears throat> has no chance. And uh, even within those couples that I've worked with, some of them are still on a try. Like, some of them are still not ready to get divorced. And, uh, like, 
if, if I don't ever, I don't want to be the person who's going to say, I don't, I'm not comfortable saying, okay, go get divorced. But I wouldn't say, I don't think that it's going to work, but I'm not going to say. What is the criteria? What are the criteria? I would say the emotional, the, if, if someone is either like constitutionally incapable of honesty, constitutionally incapable of being emotionally present, somebody who refuses to deal with their addiction, someone who refuses to deal with their depression, someone who is, someone who has a narcissistic or bipolar personality disorder. There are, you know, like, there's a handful of, of flags and, and descriptors like, oh, yeah, that, that person is going to be impossible to be married to. If I see any of those things, it's like, yeah, like that's worth getting divorced over. I would say that I hope I don't get struck by lightning here, but if so, if, if a spouse was having an emotional affair, I would say that would be grounds for divorce. If somebody had a one night stand, I would not say that that's grounds for divorce. Would you like to define an emotional affair more? Basically, if you have a spouse that is, that is not showing the capacity or the interest or the willingness to emotionally connect to the person that they're married to, but does go and connect emotionally with another person, then I would say that this couple is not meant to be married to each other. And you know of couples who have worked through the unemotional affair. Yes. What is your success model for the divorce process with the get? Just for this episode, I've been chatting with several divorcees and it's very confusing as to what's acceptable, normal standard process of divorce. It's two years not being civilly or have a get normal. Is one controlling the other? Or is it no matter how long the civil divorce takes, you just go along with it. Once that's done, the get or give the get right away to just like the woman gives up alimony or child support just to not be a get refuser. A man should just give right. a get to not be called a get refuser. I could see both being challenged as statements. Nobody should ever be a get refuser. Period. The end. Nobody should ever be a get refuser. The nuance then becomes of how do we define get refuser? You know, and what are the applications of having get, not having get? From a halachic perspective, a woman who does not have a get cannot be married to another man, should not be dating any other man. Whereas if you have your get, you could. Now, family could be in a situation where they're in court and they're fighting like cats and dogs and they have these shark type attorneys that are going at each other. And the get is not being given because the civil divorce is not getting done. In that case, it may or may not be properly fit the criteria of get refusal. Because on the one hand, husband says, okay, as soon as we get the civil divorce done, we'll, we'll do the get. So he's not specifically unwilling to give the get. He's just saying, well, you know, and the question is really, really the question in such a case should not be, did the man give the get or not? The question should be, <clears throat> what's holding up this divorce from getting finalized? Because the man says, if you give me, let's just say, if there was 
an objectively fair deal on the table to finalize the civil divorce. And it would be, let's, let's say the woman is asking for an astronomical amount of alimony. From my perspective, good divorce looks like a case where both parents can function financially and both parents can function emotionally. And when you facilitate that, that you know, healthy financial and emotional status of both parents, it gives, gives your kids the best chance for being able to survive the divorce. But if there's a, a custody fight, if there's a get fight, if there's a, a money fight, you're not, it's not just the fight that you're having with the ex. It, that fight is also damaging the kids. What can we do to focus on what's holding up the kids? We have to look at what's holding up the kids. It's usually money and custody. Those are the two things. Yeah. You know, I, I, I would say, I don't think it's fair to label a man or a woman as a get refuser in a case where the other side is, you know, we, with the willingness is there, if only the other side would be more reasonable. Like, why should, why should somebody take a deal that is not going to be good for them and not going to be good for the kids? And then also on top of that, have to give the get. I would also say that once the civil, absolutely without question, once the civil divorce is done, the get has to be given. If the civil divorce is done and the get's not given, you're a get refuser, period. It's my perspective on that. But there could be those that disagree with me and, you know, that's fine. I also say that anybody who wants to get divorced, they should definitely try going to a mediator first instead of going first to a lawyer. Because if you go to a mediator, your divorce will be much less hostile, much less expensive, (laughs) much faster and, and much healthier. It never happens that a mediated divorce takes years to resolve. Because the divorce lawyer's incentive is billable hours. <laughs> and to get whatever they can the most for their client. That's the goal. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. That the lawyer's job really is specifically to get as much as possible for their client. But the, the problem is that they're both taking from the same pie. And the other side also has a lawyer. So you have two lawyers fighting to get the, the biggest slice out of the same pie. And it drains the whole pie. Exactly. Vital, thank you so much. Any parting words? The parting words would be definitely be to try mediating. If you're going to get divorced, go to a mediator first. If you're thinking about divorce, go to a marriage counselor. Try to work it out. Don't have a, a preconceived notion over what things are unforgivable and which things aren't because you may actually find out that things that you thought you could never forgive are actually forgivable. Those are very valuable insights. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for doing this. Welcome to the show, CB. Thanks for joining us today. We are continuing the conversation around divorce. It's my pleasure. Hi, nice to meet you. Tell us a little bit about your background, like what kind of community religiously and how old were you when you got married? I grew up as a Bisakov girl and I went through the system, elementary school, high school. I went to seminary in Israel. I came home. I got married. I actually married the first guy I had gone out with. I even always think back just because like shows just where I was in life. Like after six dates, my mom says he's ready to propose. And I was like, but he doesn't even know me. But he was interested. And I was like, okay, cool. So we got married. We, I, I always considered myself like regular from 
like growing up, it was just, just normal. I dress CS, I cover my knees and my elbows to the best of my ability. I cover my hair in terms of just getting an idea of, I guess, my religious background. So I was married in total then for 16 years. We had four beautiful children together. Everyone's story is different. You'll see you're interviewing different people. You'll get a different story from everyone. When I was married for six and a half years, obviously it wasn't perfect, but I found out then that my husband had some addictions. And I had prior history from family members that had been involved in addiction and I knew that recovery was an option. So I wasn't like, I'm out. We had two children actually at the time and I, I loved him and I felt like, let's, let's try recovery. So at that point we did go into recovery. He did his program, I did my program. At some point along the way he fell out of the program and hindsight is twenty twenty. Like if I wasn't living in denial, I guess I would have realized at the time that maybe that's a big sign of like, if he's not doing recovery, then he probably is engaging in his addictive behaviors. But I, there are a lot of, were a lot of components to my life that were very much working for me and my kids. And we had a beautiful family and I, I stayed. My experience is that I stayed until the point of no return. Like I had no choice but to get out. And it was 10 years later. Can you explain what that place is? For me, the point was where the addictive behaviors were so out of control. And I had really, really put in the effort and the time. Like my ex had gone, he had gone to rehab for the second time. And I had even, I, we were separated for a little bit. And I had given him some more, like another chance at trying. But when I gave him that last chance, I really, I put the effort in the recovery. I said, I'm, I'm paying attention to recovery and that's how I'm going to know if I could like trust you or where our relationship is holding based on that. And the second I started to see the recovery slip that last time I pulled away and the, the behaviors were just, it was insanity. That's just the only way I could describe it. But it was a person that was not of the right mind because of where he was at. Once I made the decision to get divorced, like he did end up going to rehab again for the third time. So he, I think he did get his act together, but it definitely was the point of no return for me. And I, I ended the 16 year marriage. If you can go into just a little bit of detail of what, what it means, the point of no return, was he not able to pay for bills or show up to work? Were there other big trust issues that he violated. Are you able to go into that at all? I don't really want to because it's not my, I always find it's that part is not my story to tell. And obviously like I have children and everything on the internet gets out there. And one day, like I want them to ask me the questions okay, that, so, that okay. are, pertain to me. And the truth is like, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. If you want to like, if someone hears my story and they relate to it and they need to know more and help more for their personal sake, I'm so happy if they get in touch with you and you give my number to someone. I don't mind ever being a source of like help for someone, but I, I just want to protect my family members. And you know, it's not, if I want to talk about my uncontrollable behaviors that I had, that's my story to tell. That's valid. Can you tell me if there were any signs or any way you could have known about this when you were dating or earlier on in the marriage? Do you feel like the system gave you any space to see that earlier? So it's so interesting that you ask that is that 
randomly when I was in seminary the year before I dated, one of my friends said to me, like, when you're dating, like, always make sure, ask them, do they gamble? Do they drink? Do they smoke? Like, those are signs, you know? At the end of the day, I, I don't think the system led me wrong. I do know, like, in terms of us, like, did my, did my ex-husband come into the marriage with his, with his preconceived things? Yes. And I came in with mine, but the way addiction is in general is that like, like we were growing up together. So his addiction was also manifesting itself over time in different ways. And it didn't necessarily like, it didn't necessarily start out where it ended at all. So it, it was a progression for him and I don't think I would have known like based on anything like that. Oh, this is a man to stay away from at all. That was my experience. There were no like necessarily red flags. Like I joke about it. Maybe I should tell the story. Maybe I shouldn't. But when we were dating, he said to me, I look very familiar. Now I wasn't one of these girls that hung out with guys necessarily. So I, I was like, I don't know. And he, I was like, maybe in Israel. And then he said, oh, I was actually also in Israel. And we discovered that we left Israel the same time. And we ended up realizing that we were on the same flight home from Israel on our first date. And he said to me, would it be really bad if I could tell you what you were wearing? And at the time I was so flattered. Like he remembered me and what I was wearing. And mind you, I had lost 30 pounds in Israel. So this was like a big deal, like my outfit for the plane, my family was going to see me and he remembered it. And, but like in hindsight, I was like, oh, maybe that should have been a sign. Like he actually like knew what I was wearing and like, but like, who knows? Does you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm telling you that this story now. That doesn't have to be a sign, correct? Exactly. It's not a red flag at all. It's just like, you know, you think back to, oh, this and that. But there was nothing really. I don't, I don't think the system led us wrong. And knowing that this sort of manifested as an adult and within the marriage, we could blame it on genetics or something that's predisposed, but something had to activate it, right? So was it... And I'll just throw things out and could it be the stress of the financial from life or having so many children compared to your average? For my experience wasn't like that. My experience is that it, something manifested itself from his childhood, which took on a life of its own and, and the traumas weren't dealt with properly. And then obviously as life handed itself and there were financial pressures and we weren't a huge family. We had four children and they were pretty spread out, but there is lifestyles to uphold to. We bought the house, we went to the country, you know, we went on the vacations. He had his own business. I'm sure there were stress factors that ha didn't necessarily help his addictive behaviors, but I don't think that they were the start, the cause or the reason for them at all. That was my situation. Okay. Do you feel like you'd ever want to remarry if so, what do you think of the divorcees out there that are available? So I actually was married for a second time for a year and they say third time's a charm. So hit me up. What happened the second time? So the second marriage was so different, the circumstances. It was only for a year. It was a case of he, he had four children. I had four children and we were actually raising them at that point at guess different religious levels and standards and our expectations for our children were different and the blending just it was just too much so it wasn't working out it was the ages of the kids the time and it just it wasn't the right thing what do you have to say about the divorce market I don't think it's so promising but I have a lot of faith and belief in my higher power and I know that like 
he he could do anything so like if there's someone out there that's meant for me he'll find his way to me he'll be normal he'll be my type i do try not to engage so much out there in the the divorce world it's sketchy it's scary there's so many people that that have been through things and to no fault of their own like they they react based on their experiences and not necessarily do they put their best foot forward and is it someone that i'd want to be associated with or hanging out with it's not saying it's the case for all divorced people but i definitely am picky about where i hang out and who i hang out with but i definitely believe in dating and marriage and listen i met my second husband on jswipe i never like if you would tell me when i was a kid like there'll be something even call jswipe and uh -huh. you're just gonna like talk to someone and then go out with them and then marry them like it was i never would have thought it would be possible so anything's possible you know talk to me about stigma and was that at all something you thought about or was it you know what's best for me what's best for the kids and i have no options other than getting divorced it's a good question i i think when it came to my first divorce i wasn't thinking about the stigma because i really really knew that i had put those 10 years into the marriage and into the relationship and into trying that i would be able to look my four kids in the eyes and say mommy gave it her all and have no regrets that this was the right thing for me to be doing at the time. When it came to the second marriage, there was definitely those thoughts that went through my head. You know, if you're divorced twice, it definitely puts this like, but I do have a friend that was divorced twice and then she's in her third marriage, like so happily married. And she, it was like inspiring for me to know, like if you really, if, if you do the right thing and you make the right choice for yourself, and this is what you and your kid, me and my, for me, it was me and my, what me and my children needed at the time, then like, I'll do my best and like Hashem does the rest type of situation, you know? So I, I didn't let the world like get into my viewpoint. Like I wasn't making choices and decisions for the world anymore. I did that for years before. We can have a whole podcast on the masks that I wore. Love to do that. Okay. And tell me about the divorce process, the get and your experience with Basin. So I am very grateful. Both my gets happened like pretty for sure the second get right away the first get didn't happen the second after but we we were working with court and then with a mediator and the second like we had all agreements like ready and prepared we we signed them and had to get the same day so i didn't really get up in front of Baston except for at the get and it was usually like a private Baston i guess that came into the shul each time i'll share a little bit my my feelings on being divorced and we spend so much time and energy, people, humans, getting those agreements in place. And people fight and they... At the end of the day, my experience is that agreements are optional. They're recommendations of what you should be doing. But you need to have two people that are following agreements and want to be agreeable in order for them to be upheld. And that's not always the case. So. It's just like I did the whole like going back to court and trying to fight. It's the emotional toll it took on me was just not worth it. Like I dropped the cases and do I get everything that's in the agreement? No. Will I ever? No. Are my children happy? Yes. Because I just, I try for their sake to keep, keep going, keep the smile on my face. And, and just like my point is in sharing this with people is don't be so busy fighting and arguing about all the nitty gritty details because I know that they are important and you feel that they're important, but at the end of the day, it's like I was starting to say before, it takes two agreeable people to make the agreement work 
and if the person was so agreeable, most likely wouldn't be getting divorced. So like, that's my thought. You have to just pick your battles and me and my ex right now, we really get along very well. I actually have a funny story. The other, it goes back a few weeks ago. I was on with one ex and all of a sudden I was getting a call, like a click from my second ex and I was laughing. I'm like, if I would snap a picture from my phone now, like people would laugh, like both my exes are calling me at the same time. But I, I very much feel like keep the peace is so much more worth it in the long run. And I, I get along with both of them for whatever reasons, like whatever, some, if I have ties, if I don't have ties, like I just try to make it work. I, I would just want people to just like put your ego aside. I know it's the hardest thing, especially when you're getting divorced. And I can't say I was able to do it right away, but I, I know that I, you're, you're winning in life if you're able to. You said your first ex is in recovery now and is successful in that sense. Let's, no. let's not plagiarize the words. I love it. <laughs> I did not say that. I said we got divorced. I have no idea where he's holding in his recovery today. Got it. Okay. So no regrets all in all. No, really not. Like I thought about it actually recently because even my second ex, I was like, do you regret? But like, you know, it was such a short marriage. But I have to say like when I got divorced from him, so much of my trauma that I had to deal with came up for me. And I was able to, I was able to work it through after that point. So I always find like everything takes you from point A to point B and it's where I'm at now. But then if there's anything else you want to add in, now's your time. Right. After my second divorce, I moved. I felt like there was a Hebrew Pesach saying, Mishana Mako, Mishana Mazel, which means you move your place and you move your luck. And I did that for myself and my kids. And it was one, I've been, I've been through a lot in my life. This was like literally one of the hardest things, but my children are doing so well. I, in return, was just able to like feel so much freer. I got a new job. I started a business. I have like a very fulfilling life and I just want to share it with people because I want them to realize like you could go through so much and it could break you down, but you could also rebuild yourself and there's hope and it's, Divorce is hard, but, and it gets stigmatized for whatever reason is, but don't let it, don't let it hold you back. Like you could be so much more even with being divorced. So that's my takeaway for people. And you moved different communities or you just moved within the same? Yeah, no, I moved different communities. I sold my house that I had shared with my ex and I bought a new house and moved to a whole new community. find in this generation because we're such a iPhone iPad generation and it's everything is disposable people people get stuck in their their eyes their ego and they they won't fight for you know they get so like this is how it has to be and what I said and he's not whatever where she's not and as opposed to really just putting your ego aside and working it through to make the relationship work you know sometimes there are real reasons that people have to get divorced. There's real abuse. There's real, whether it's physical abuse or sexual abuse or verbal abuse. Sometimes there's, in my case, there was addictions. Like I said, there were many addictions and it was over, over the course of many years of things, trust being lost and being like, trying um, to rebuild it and it being broken again. Exactly. A lot of that feeling. And those are good reasons for people to be getting divorced. But sometimes I'm finding it hard because 
I watch younger people and just not, I really think it's a lot of the, the ego, the lot of the, the not willing to like see past yourself or just do for someone just because and see where that takes you. Like th those kind of risks, people are so afraid of it and, and afraid to be vulnerable that they end up like just deciding, okay, this marriage doesn't work. Let's see what else is out there. But trust me, guys, like I, I used to tell people after I first got divorced, I used to, as a joke, I would say like, stay unhappily married. And I would say it as a joke because really nobody should stay unhappily married. But also I used to think like sometimes what work with it, like it's it's less scary than going out there and seeing what else is out there because that's even scarier. But divorce is definitely more prevalent in the community. Uh, I don't necessarily know why, like, but I just I just wish people would fight for it more, fight for their marriages if they can. CB, tell me what's the best or worst advice you got after getting divorced? It's a great question. Actually, the best advice that I got was from a friend of mine. I called her up and she told me to remember that the same God that created me and created my story and my situation is the same God that chose my ex-husband to be the father of my children. And that piece of advice has really kept me always moving in the right direction and the in a place of peace because like if God chose this person to be my kid's father then I'm never going to take my kids away from him I'm never going to get in the way of him being their father he you know whether I agree with his ways whether I don't agree with his ways it's not for me to choose this was God you know and it's going to be my children's journey to live and to figure out the same way I was able to live my own journey and figure out my own life for myself and when my kids go to their dad and things happen that I wouldn't necessarily want it to be going on when it's my house. I just remember like it's their journey and I it keeps me from like getting involved and getting picky and calling and saying is this a I literally like when it's at my house I'm in control and when it's there he's in control. It's not my it's not my place, it's not my business and it really really keeps a lot of the peace between the two of us. So wow. that's great advice. Thank you for sharing that. We are continuing with our series. I grew up in an open-minded yeshivish house, kind of the type that we all went to different schools, some modern orthodox, some very yeshivish, and it wasn't like considered like, oh, this one thing is better than the other. It's just wherever it was best for one particular person at one particular time. That being said, the community that I was in was definitely the kind of like left-wing Beis Yaakov community. And those are, that's definitely the hashkafa that I saw from my neighbors, from my teachers in elementary school, and just from the community members. I got married pretty young. I got married kind of right when I turned 21. And it's funny because then I felt so old. I started dating when I was 19 and that year was just like oh my gosh like I'm getting old oh no and now I am in my upper 20s and I feel like the youngest person in the world I feel like I have my world ahead of me I feel like there's just so much time I like the thought of someone saying no to me because I'm too old doesn't even cross my mind Regarding what went wrong in my marriage, 
I, I wouldn't even say there's something that went wrong as much as bad enough going right. There, Baruch Hashem, is a lot more talk about red flags while dating, but there needs to be more talk about green flags, about things that make this person right for you and right for me. I, I kind of see a lot of people kind of dating in the more shuttle, old school kind of model of, oh, as long as your Hitchcock was checked out and as long as someone has enough in common on paper, then it'll work out and you'll respect each other and you'll learn to love one another. And while that is a beautiful model and has a lot of beautiful values, I just find that myself included, and a lot of other people that I know, both people who are divorced or, or not divorced, people who are married, some people who acknowledge that their marriage could be better, and some people who are petrified to even admit that because divorce is so rampant. And if they admit that they're like afraid that they have to start contending with divorce, which I understand why they would not want to do, but that model just doesn't work anymore. I remember people kind of saying like, oh, like love comes after marriage. And I'm so happy for the people that it works out that way, but it just doesn't work that way for everyone. I think now that we live in a time where we're so much more in touch with our emotions and our passions, we really are able, and it's a privilege, more able to get to kind of like a higher level of connection and of self-actualization through marriage. And I see that there's a lot of trouble when, on one hand, we are being encouraged to look into our emotional world and words like self-actualization are, are spoken about and, and Baruch Hashem, like, you know, that's, that's a Ufde Hashem, that's something that we should be doing and should be thinking about. But I found that a lot of the, just the dialogue around dating kind of wasn't wasn't about that and even if it was spoken there is so much dialogue in the other direction so i i can't say that i that someone sat me down and, and said you will should not look for love love will come after marriage but it's little snippets of what i heard so much and it really sunk in and it's funny because my family really didn't necessarily give me that message but it's just like over years tiny little bits of that message coming in. It, it really affected me. And I, I also think that something important to keep in mind when talking about divorce is that it, it takes two people to get into a relationship that ends in divorce. People talk a lot about like once you're getting divorced, but why did those two people get into that relationship? What was working? What was not working? What they ignored? And there's kind of this mentality of, I need to show how crazy my ex was or how bad my ex was. And I don't see a need for that. I don't think we need to vilify anyone. We're all doing the best we can. And we, we don't know any better when we get married. We think that for whatever reason, that's the right thing to do. And I know that with some of my other divorced friends, it's actually really empowering when we talk about the things that we did wrong and how we could have acted better rather than just blame, blame, blame on the other person. I don't think my ex is a bad person. I think both of us didn't date how we are going to date the second time around. But if someone asked me if they should marry him, I, I, 
have 100% confidence in him that he would not make those same mistakes, just like I'm confident that I won't make those same mistakes again. I really would love if the dialogue could shift from divorce and preventing divorce to having healthy marriages from the get-go and to teaching people how to date in a way that that people are forming very nuanced emotional relationships. I want to thank our guests once again. Thank you, Bitsal. Thank you, CB, and our anonymous guest who all contributed one of their most vulnerable stories for this podcast, for your ears, for your information and awareness. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for supporting this cause. I love hearing from you, so please feel free to reach out with your feedback. If you'd like to pass on a message to one or all of our guests, feel free to do so as well. And stay tuned. Have a great week.